0: Hello, uh, may I have all your attention, please? From now, we're going to request for the Dhamma talk from Lumpur. Pramma ja loga thip pati Kat hum pati gud an tha tha paratha chakha the So now the uh, bhikkhus are off, uh, some of them off sewing the uh, katina robe, they make the antarawasika, uh, the, uh, the loin cloth underneath the the main, this robe here. And then this evening, uh, offer it to Ajahn Asaji, according to the uh, Sankakamma, or procedures of the Sangha. So I always like to contemplate this. Uh, the, this, because this is such an ancient tradition uh, and for many of us uh, it's, it's something new uh, it's a completely new new experience uh, um, and yet it comes from an ancient time and it all is based around the uh, developing of, of a way of life that can be carried on from one generation to another which can now keep the purity of the Buddhist teachings uh, and and live according to those ways and in each generation from the time of the Buddha in ancient India to the present moment here and now and so this is what a tradition is it's something handed on from one generation to another when you think of how many enlightened human beings there there have been, but have not established any tradition. Um, and so they like the Bujeka Buddhas, or those enlightened beings who who become who are enlightened, but have no have left no sign, nothing uh, that can be carried forth on to the next generation, or the next person. So the the Lord Buddha. Shakyamuni Buddha of ancient India did establish a tradition, uh, a container, a vehicle uh, that allows his his essential teaching to be practiced, to be uh, used uh, for enlightenment. In which, then, each generation, from the time of the Buddha to the present, has, in in its own way, has been able to. Uh, utilize that teaching, so uh, we all feel this uh, a, this kind of gratitude uh, to the wisdom of the Lord Buddha for establishing something so uh, so well. Because we think of uh, of all the uh, traditions that we have uh, in our own culture, our own civilization, that we can trace back to 2,500 years. It's hard hard to come up with anything. Uh, can't, I can't really think of anything <laughs> and the Buddhist teaching of course uh, his insight after his enlightenment was um, he put it in terms that, that I- are universally acceptable uh, so the, the Buddha, Buddhist religion at this time is not is not kind of bound by a culture. It's not it's not limited to a kind of archaeological, uh, anthropological uh, phenomena that only we, we admire the the ancient ruins of an old civilization in the British Museum. Um, but he put it his teaching his essential teaching the Four Noble Truths was the contemplation of the common experience of suffering. That is. Uh, that is what we all can recognize in our lives the experience of suffering it's not a cultural uh, teaching is it? it's not something that, uh, that uh, is caused by any particular thing for like a, a form of government or a social system or the unfairnesses or the injustices of any particular uh, civilization or tribe or group the suffering the Buddha was pointing to wasn't uh, the uh, like the wars and the injustices that we experience in society, but the suffering that we naturally experience as human beings. Uh, whatever, no matter how fortunate our lives might be, no matter how uh, stable and well-developed our civilizations might be, uh, and secure, and... Uh, uh, advanced and uh, wealthy we still experience suffering and having pursued this particular path for for over 30 years the uh, this this investigation of suffering uh, and you probably might think of so, you might think that as a monk you kind of may be getting out of the experience of suffering but. I think um, in monasticism intensifies this experiences <laughs> It's not an asceticism it's nothing like the, the system itself is cruel, brutal and and, and tries to, to make our make us miserable. The system itself is based on very uh, wonderful a uh, foundation of, of morality. Of, of being responsible for how you live, for generosity, virtues, so that the actual uh, tradition, the system, uh, that the foundation for monastic life uh, can't be faulted. There's nothing wrong with it, nothing you can blame uh, and say it's the cause of suffering. So then this helps to reflect, like a mirror, our own discontentment, our own Forms of greed, hatred, and delusion that we create around our, in our lives. Even as, as monks or nuns, we manage to uh, create quite a bit of misery in our minds. Uh, over the, uh, uh, just the the habits, the emotional habits that we've acquired from, from our life so far. But then the way out of suffering. The Buddha taught the way of non-suffering. Not through trying to straighten everything out and make everything fair and right and good and perfect in the world, but by understanding. So it's a, it's a wisdom path that the Buddha taught, and the, the development and use of wisdom in daily life. Uh, so that we begin to understand the conditions that we have to live with as human beings. Being a human being is like this. We have a we have a human body which is uh, subject to all kinds of sensory impingements, and so it's like today. You know, I thought when at the time when the when people were getting ready to offer the alms food, the rice pindabar, suddenly it decided to rain. I think why couldn't it have waited till it rained before, or after, just at the time. You we could have I could have created suffering around that because the rain didn't want the rain wanted the sunshine didn't want the cold wanted nice warm weather uh, so just just out of just the way it is you know the the natural way of things the weather here is like this uh, at this time it it's it's cold or hot or just right or it's raining or it's not raining but this is the way it is and that we feel this we We experience maybe the cold or the heat or the wet or the damp. But how we respond to that impingement, we have the choice of either getting caught in wishing it were otherwise, blaming it on somebody else, resenting it, complaining, whinging about it, or not realizing that this is the life in this human form has always this natural experience of of uh, things not being exactly what we want them to be, uh, that that uh, this realm is never going to suit me, uh, and and go along with all my desires and wishes and feelings and uh, desires in the in the present. So when we recognize a simple truth that suffering is caused through attachment to ideas, to desires, to to things, to uh, opinions and views, to uh, attitudes, to emotional habits. This, this very attachment, we begin to recognize uh, this attachment as the cause of suffering. So we, we learn how to let go. In other words, we learn how to trust, to really let go of desires and habits we have to really have a sense of trust a safe refuge a place that we we can really depend upon something that isn't going to let us down and change according to uh, time and place and whether everything's well or not well or how, how you're feeling whether you're healthy or healthy or thick or uh, the, the country's prospering, or it's falling apart, or whatever. What is the refuge then? And so, in in the traditional form of refuge, we say, Putang, uh, Tamang Sernangachami, which is uh, the refuge. What it means, practically speaking, in terms of what it's pointing to as a real refuge, is the uh, mindfulness. Being awake and alert in the present, and using wisdom, understanding, looking into and understanding the experience of life as we as we are experiencing, as we have to experience uh, life according to the way we are, where we're living, the kind of character we have, the the physical conditions that we have to exist with, no matter what they are. It's not like like suffering. Uh, ends, just because we're healthy. Because some of the most healthy people manage to suffer a lot. The most beautiful people, the richest. Or you begin to, you see the inspiration that comes through. Sometimes you meet people who have really, really, uh, you know, very pathetic handicaps physical problems physical handicaps uh that you know have been born we deformed in some way or have a have some kind of terminal illness and or who have all kinds of blind or deaf and yet within those restrictions and and the unfairness of of having uh, not having such a good lot to to live with uh but manage to develop mindfulness and wisdom in their lives. Sometimes tragedy or sickness or loss force us. Either we, we sink into a, a realm of fear and depression and blame and despair, or we learn to rise up to life, look more, awakened to life. And put some wisdom into our lives to understand them. And this uh, physical handicaps and and poverty and and sickness and and deprivation and loss and all the rest. These are not obstructions to enlightenment. The obstruction to enlightenment is the uh, attachment to desire. So uh, that. Whether you're, no matter, as long as you insist on doing that, then, then the obstruction lies. And that simple habit of attachment, grasping out of ignorance, not understanding, living life only for happiness, for, for selfish reasons, no, not really awakening and looking and experiencing. But it's easy to, to just get kind of conditioned in the early years of your life and just roll on. Uh, uh, the momentum of your early conditioning till you die without awakening even though you might look like you're awake you're really a, a conditioned automaton that just uh, gets co- uh, operates according to the uh, worldly values mm-hmm. when you're praised you feel happy when you're blamed you feel angry uh, when you're successful you're happy when you fail you're depressed when you're healthy, you're happy when you're sickly, you're despairing uh, when you when you, people respect you and you have high status and you're considered an important person, you're happy when you're despised and and you're poor and, and look down on you're depressed, want to kill yourself so here, like in Thailand, now the economic uh, depression that's going on, you People committing suicide mm. because of uh, they have no refuge. They should have. They're Buddhists, <laughs> but there's no refuge. And if you just have refuge in a bank or in a in a, in wealth or in in uh, the 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 momentary experience of uh, economic development, because those things can change and they're very erratic and. Dependent on so many other other things, so the the uh, monastic life, the, the life of a samana, is is based on, uh, alms mendicancy. And so that is, that's really quite a, uh, uh, an interesting thing for Western, for Western civilization, alms mendicancy. Because one of the many questions we get asked, one of the usual questions uh, coming from uh Western mind from Europeans or Americans is uh, you know they think alms mendicancy means we're kind of like freeloaders on the system or we 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 expect people to just support us like like living on the dole or something we just just kind of uh, hanging on and expect people to feed us and take care of us and we're not doing anything worthwhile. Because uh, they think, you know, as one woman said to me uh, years ago at she, Chitta, she said, you, you, you don't work, you don't do anything, you just expect us to come and offer you food. And I said, look, here, <laughs> yeah. If you were paying me a salary of uh, 50,000 pounds a year, you would think I was a very successful person. (laughs) 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 And you know the kind, you know, the ongoing efforts it takes to, to develop awareness, you know, and to really sustain awareness, to pay attention, to really learn. Uh, from from the life uh, uh, that that one is living as a monk, and then the the living in a community of summoners, of men and women living in communal life, and all the amount of teaching and counseling and and uh, things that we do. We you know if we had if we had to pay us a salary. you know how many do vicars get <laughs> but it's funny how you know the, the the mind thinks if you're not if you don't have a salary somehow that means you're not worth anything well if you had a hundred uh, thousand pounds a year salary you'd probably think he's a really successful Buddhist monk <laughs> And he has, a, he has a he has a Rolls Royce. You know. But being a an mendicant mendicant, we, we we emphasize the the uh, the the basis of, of life, the four requisites uh, that the Buddha established as as necessities, requisites that that are necessary to live with, such as food. One has to have food. So the, this morning the uh, rice binderbart, the offering of food, the traditional offering of food is is the result of that. It's offering one of the requisites. Food is a necessity for survival. Uh, something to wear. You have to have robes or some something to, to put on your body. So, so that the the allowance was made just on rags at first the Buddha allowed the the first bhikkhus, the early bhikkhus to just pick up cloth that had been left behind thrown out by the lay community in those days no doubt cloth was uh, of great value because they had to weave it, it wasn't like it is now where you've got manufactured textiles and all kinds of choices and, and cloth all over the place but in uh, in ancient India no doubt cloth was a very valuable thing so because of that the, the Buddha allowed the bhikkhus to take to search for the cloth that was thrown out so that was like in charnel grounds they used to wrap corpses in, in cloth and the bhikkhus were allowed to go to those charnel grounds and take the, the cloth that had been, uh, that had been uh, on a corpse nobody else wanted that cloth but the bhikkhus could take that, and it wasn't like stealing or taking anything that belonged to somebody else. And then the uh, lay people began to respect the bhikkhus so much they they felt that uh, they would like to offer cloths to the bhikkhus after the vassa, end of the vassa. So the Buddha allowed the katina ceremony. So this today is the is uh, is from that allowance that the Buddha. Uh, made where cloth uh, for robes can be offered, we, and of course lay people aren't going to just scrounge around picking up old rags uh, from corpses. They're going to usually try, <laughs> try to get quite nice textiles, and that. so <laughs> so we can make our robes uh, without any without uh, any great problem or difficulty in in getting cloth. But cloth is a is a requisite, a necessity. Then, then uh, shelter for the night. Some place that you can live uh, w- to protect you from the elements. So, uh, for the the original allowance was the foot of a tree. Living at the foot of a tree. So, so the, the then but then other shelters are allowed, such as the the residences here and so forth. The cooties, the the caravan; the, these are made allowable to us as shelters for the night, rather than personal uh, dwellings, private dwellings. Then the uh, medicine for illness, uh, and the medicine is a necessity, so medical things are offered. And here in in Britain is very the medical system, and that's very generous. So we you know, just on level of the national health and, and all that, we have, uh, we have a much higher standard of, of medical opportunities than, than we expect according to our alms-mendicant uh, tradition. So on the whole, our life here in, in Britain is, uh, for in terms of the four requisites, is, uh, is, is, quite, is excellent. You know, you can't complain, you can't blame your suffering on uh, the fact that you don't have anything to eat or you don't have anything to wear or any place to live or nobody cares about you when you're sick and you're just laying around suffering from fevers and dying without anybody offering any medicine. In fact, people offer me medicine all the time. I get fed up with it. People always trying to cure my big swollen foot, and so the the um, this is uh, I'm not complaining, but <laughs> but it certainly I'm not. I have I'm suffering can't be blamed on a lack of interest or not, not getting any medicine. Is it? So I contemplate that in my life here in in England for the past. Twenty years, twenty-one years. Uh, say, I I have no complaints to make in in terms of the four requisites. there's never, never been any problem uh, in terms of uh, shelter, robes, food, medicine. So that's a reflection, say, of a of an alms mendicant, isn't it? I am contemplating this. I I recognize that on the basis of. What is necessary for physical survival here in England? That, that it's uh, it's very good, standards are quite high, very good, and uh, uh, people are are very generous. There's no problem. There's no there's no religious persecution. One doesn't feel uh, in any disadvantage or that there's any problem in being a Buddhist monk in this society. You know, so in terms of survival on that level. You're protected by the, 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 the social system, the political system and everything else is, and there's no kind of uh, religious uh, persecution. So then we have the uh, traditional Dhamma Vinaya and the, the Buddha established a teaching called Dhamma and he established the Vinaya for the monastics. Which is, a, a, a which is based on restraining oneself, limiting oneself. So Dhamma is, is the truth of the way it is, so this, this awakening the mind, this uh, willingness to observe and be with the experience of life in all its aspects, whether it's uh, 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 when it's good, when it's bad, when it's mediocre, when it's boring... Uh, when it's hot and cold when it's uh, when you're feeling good, when you're feeling horrible when people love you and people hate you (laughs) whatever the whatever the uh, conditions might be uh, we see the Dhamma of it we we contemplate the way it is and so the Buddha was pointing to the obvious uh, fact provable fact of The impermanence of the conditioned realm. Everything's changing. I've never been able to find a permanent emotion in myself or a permanent thought in myself. I've never... The body is obviously impermanent. 21 years here in England, and and I came here uh, looking much younger than this. Now, uh, 21 years later, I look in the mirror and say, who's that old guy there? amusing to see, I was walking across the uh, Burke Hampstead golf course one morning and walking across there and I saw these old men playing golf and I said, look at those old men. I thought, they're probably about the same age as I (laughs) am. So old age is is the way it is. So, So that's just, that's, but that the we're seeing the dhamma of it, of age, rather than, say, the vanity or the personal attachment, the idea of, of being a human body, of being young or old or attractive or unattractive or being male or female or whatever. We're we're contemplating that in terms of dhamma, rather than which is, is is then say we we break through the attachment, the identity. With the, with the, what we look like with the condition of the body itself which doesn't mean that we don't it's not a rejection it's not a value judgment against it it's a recognition of the way it is we're seeing it in terms of Dhamma rather than in terms of personality or preference or emotional habits and so there's this transcending of these conditions through this awareness then the monastic form is is based on uh, restraint and that's something quite quite uh, unusual at this time restraining, isn't it? it's a time for indulgence Say in, in here in Britain, isn't it? Uh, it's a time where in Europe and America where I'm from in California just, just indulge try everything um, experience that was back in the '60s, early '60s, when I was a student. That that it was experience. I said, try experience everything, and so that, that sounded very attractive when you're young. <laughs> but some things are, you know, you know, if you try to experience everything, some things are not very, you know, t- un- tend to be very disappointing. And experience itself. Without any wisdom or any common sense or any understanding or any uh, sense of, of responsibility for for yourself, just to to do whatever you feel like, follow any impulse, is uh, say is is very much the the mood of the age. So monasticism is is restraint, and that seems very strange to people. Celibacy. The uh, taking on the vows of celibacy is restraint, and that seems uh, almost like a perversion to some people. Some people get very angry about that. That is the ultimate perversion, celibacy. <laughs> We're going to have celibate rites, I think. <laughs> Start a group of celibate rites. <laughs> But the point of it is, is it is uh, taking the responsibility for, uh, say, our, our sexual uh, drives in that, and 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 re- and limiting our activities in that way to be reflective, not repressive, or or uh, being uh, in denial or rejection, but in reflecting, seeing uh, the power of these these energies and drives that the body produces and the habits and and that that we've acquired so that more and more there's this awareness this enlightened attention to the flow of experience within this conscious form that we have in the present the restraining quality of monasticism can be repressive you know if it's taken in the wrong way if we're just Trying to resist and control everything, out of fear, and out of desire to to uh, control and reject, and and uh, and that out of aversion, then that is repression, and that uh, that uh, also has its its uh, terrible result of of you know uh, becoming increasingly neurotic and and all kinds of <coughs> difficult emotional problems come from there but the the monastic life is not a repressive form it's a it's a way to reflect the mirror for observing the the shadows the conditions the things that come and go and change the movements the arising the cessation of drives of instinctual drives of of habits of emotions of thoughts, of attitudes, of assumptions, cultural conditioning—all uh, the the whole lot that we acquire once we're born, the whole the whole thing that that we get uh, conditioned with—is reflected in this in this through this mindfulness, this awakened attentiveness to the experience in the present. So this kind of teaching now is is, uh, be is is increasingly valued in the Western world and in and in Asia. It's very heartening sometimes, and when, uh, when you go to Thailand to see the amount of interest uh, that lay people have now in meditation that they didn't have say 15 years ago. Uh, there's a lot more kind of awakening going on, even though. Uh, in some ways, one thinks, you know, the, the newspapers love to, love to uh, uh, proclaim the, the degeneration of the religion, you know, by emphasizing everything that a monk does wrong, getting some kind of headline in the newspaper <laughs> in Bangkok. Uh, but, are, but in spite of all that, and you emphasize the, the faults and the things that, that you can see as, as degeneration, There's this other side also that I I want to remind you of. There's a a lot more interest and commitment and serious interest in meditation and developing uh, according to the teaching of the Lord Buddha in Thailand itself or in Sri Lanka. And then here in the Western world, in Europe for example there's there's, uh, I say in uh, the uh, psychology, psychotherapy, psychiatry, there seems to be a, a coming together, almost a growing movement within uh, the the, the psych- psychotherapists towards a kind of uh, more Buddhist understanding of the uh, human condition, and the interest and the uh, and the recognition of the importance of mindfulness, of learning to pay attention, to be here and now, to, to be in that state of uh, a willingness to look and admit and to feel the presence of, of the, that we have in the, uh, here and now, whether it's pain or misery or despair or happiness or whatever, the, the, the constant factor is the mindfulness the ability to pay attention to be awake having lived in England for 21 years it's, uh, you know one feels uh, uh, you know that it's been very worthwhile because it, uh, the people do benefit uh, you can see here just the the amount the of say uh, here at team since 1984, taking on such a uh, a project as as this place. I'm coming from a from Thai forest tradition, where you you go off into the woods, and uh, or a cave, or live under a tree, and <laughs> and uh, you you. Uh, you get out of all the kind of organization and and all that that comes through having to take on something on this scale. And uh, through the past uh, 13, 14 years, uh, there's many, many times when I w- would love to have gone back into a cave and <laughs> and just said, uh, I want to forget all this and just uh, listen to the waterfall uh, and read these Zen these Zen haiku stanzas of the the the, 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 the monk sitting uh, in the forest listening to the birds singing and the water falling and, uh, and the, yeah. another committee meeting another <laughs> another thing somebody thump said about something uh, <laughs> somebody is dissatisfied or unhappy or blaming or angry or whatever and you, and, and you think uh, oh it would be nice to go off to the cave or listen to the waterfall but in terms of practice then the, the emphasis isn't on the environment but on the attention to the present so that the the buddha did not teach uh, that we should be dependent upon uh, an environment of any sort he did recommend uh, in the beginning to go to forests or places that that do not particularly you know have uh, arouse or excite uh, the the senses cuz nature itself is quite calming when you listen to the the w- to a waterfall or look at the sky or or observe or live in a forest it it tends to calm the mind down but if one gets dependent upon the environment that we, you know then that means that we're still uh, we still get lost if if the, if that serenity external serenity is lo- is is dis- disrupted and i remember uh, this uh, in thailand I, I became very attached to a certain monastery in Uborn and and I helped to uh, uh, to establish this monastery. It was uh, is up in Umnatiller and and it's a very beautiful place, naturally beautiful, tr- tall trees and kind of rock ledges and and it's a very interesting kind of uh, place. And I always thought you know, it would be ideal to live in in a cave like this. Uh, in a forest like this, and after uh, two years there, the place became quite famous, and uh, then tourist buses started coming, and and uh, remember the uh, GIs, there's there a big American Air Force base, they come with with transistor radios, and 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 the and they distur- disturbed my paradise. That I'd become very attached to, and uh, and I developed all kinds of angry, indignant mental states in the midst of this paradise, you know, because I had become very attached to it, and 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 really resented, hated, uh, and was indignant at the disruption of it. But then the practice is looking at suffering. I did not say the suffering is due to the to the American airmen coming up playing transistor radios or the tourists or am I creating suffering? So this was this was the whole style of teaching of Lung Po Cha was who what who's creating the suffering? You know, and, and and if we think it's the American airmen with their transistor radios or tour tourists that's not it. It's the what I create: my anger, my indignation, my resentment towards them. That's the suffering. That's that's the kind of suffering I can let go of. I don't have to create that. Once I see that, once I know and and understand that, then I then I refrain from doing that. I stop doing it. Stop creating problems, issues uh, around the conditions that I'm experiencing whether they if they're pleasant and ideal and serene and calm and, and that still not to attach to that to understand the, the 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 danger of attachment or if things aren't well if things are uh, confused and and noisy and difficult not to create anger resentment about it so this is the challenge for, for, for us uh, and for the, the seminars here to learn how to, to uh, use the experiences that we have with wisdom, developing this mindfulness and wisdom. Here at Amaravati now you can see it, it's uh, uh, the deva- development in the past few years. The temple here. Uh, I'm very happy with this temple. It's a, it's a really beautiful temple, and uh, it's better. Uh, it's better than I'd anticipated. I have a good imagination. <laughs> but uh, the the actual result it, 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 it makes a a a place that one really enjoys being in. We. I really look forward to coming into this building and to sitting here in meditation to chanting to uh, occasions like this you have uh, on a katina a place big enough where everybody can fit in and and also feel they're in a place they like to be in it's a pleasant uh, atmosphere this temple was built on donations and offerings from people so it it wasn't based on, on any kind of uh, business or, or trying to, you know, we, d- we hardly had to uh, do anything in terms of, uh, uh, of raise fundraising. People came forth and, and made generous donations. It, it, they, people wanted this temple. So, so it, uh, it seemed to, you know, it seemed to build itself almost because it wasn't uh, you know like a, an onerous task even or a, or something that was very disruptive and hurtful uh, at the time of its building people used to come here remember during the time of its construction and say oh it must be terrible to have to live here now all those this noise and construction and actually it was it was interesting you know to watch a, a play a temple being built and the the workmen, they were all we got. We learned to. We made friends with all the uh, the workmen that that came here. And they, when they first came, they looked at us. You know, usually they they look at us as if we're we we're cracked in some way, and, and we're kind of weirdos. And but then by the time they left, we were all quite good friends, and they respected it. And and so they even you know. Uh, they watched their language when they <laughs> <and> they, <laughs> they didn't play radios or anything like that I mean one appreciated the kind of respect that, the, that even the, uh, the workmen uh, uh, generated towards the building of this temple So the temple is—it's uh, the—I um, the had this vision years ago, a kind of a mental sign uh, of a of a kind of stupa or chedi on top of a hill uh, somewhere in England, and uh, and so somehow this kind of manifests this in a in a physical way, material way, this this particular building, but then. It's also, it, it reminds us of the where the real work lies is in the mind itself. It's, a, a, you know, it's when it say it's easier to build this temple than to develop meditation. Because the meditation is something that, that is, you know, really challenging throughout your life. You've really got to to be on the alert all the time because there's so many things that easily uh, intimidate and take you over. So many emotional habits and subtleties of emotion that you're not aware of for, for a long time. So in over the years, it's seen uh, the kind of things that really throw me off, where I'm most vulnerable, where I'm least mindful where I tend to flaw, and this this and, and with mindfulness we we go to these flaws rather than than feel defeated by our weaknesses or faults. We actually use those faults and weaknesses. Because we, we—that's the dukkha, the first noble truth—that we understand, we go to. So that is a that makes the meditation into something that's quite challenging and interesting, rather than than having an ideal form of uh, uh, of meditation based on being peaceful and serene and tranquil all the time, uh, which we can get sometimes, but. So much of our life isn't that way, isn't tranquil, isn't serene. And the emotions get triggered off into we get, find ourselves just feeling very upset over some little slight. And it is amazing. Sometimes uh, somebody my age, you can feel very upset, really crushed by some trivial little thing. Uh, and you 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 think, in terms of your condition mind, you think i'm oh, I'm a mature man, and I've been a monk all these years, surely I shouldn't let anything like this bother me and then it's <laughs> it's <laughs> then you start uh you know uh, uh, finding fault with yourself, feeling uh condemning yourself and seeing that you're you know you d- you you aren't as good as you'd like to be or you can change that to seeing that you, you, you recognize where you, you do get lost or where you, you do uh, get carried away, where the suffering is. That's the clue. That's the first noble truth. So that's the Dhamma that we, we understand. And through that willingness to open to suffering and it, then we let go of the causes of it. So we find an increasing sense of stability and strength in our lives uh, uh, because of the, the kind of as we, we see that the, the we know the results of our practice and we know how to practice we know how to use the conditions that we have the way we are the people we're living with the, 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 the place we're living in it's no longer I could practice much better if, if I were with these people and not with those. Or if I were in a different place, or if I had to in, uh, go to another teacher, or go, go to Thailand, or go to Burma someplace. You can always, uh, these, these kind of restless feelings of, of thinking I was wanting to go somewhere else where we could really practice better. Or we see that we, we begin to see this this restlessness this this thing that we create in our mind uh, and uh, and we re- and recognize the weakness of that that's the weak point uh, the that we begin to investigate not condemn and not hate ourselves for for feeling like this or having these p- these weaknesses or faults but in, in using that. Investing, looking at it, understanding it. So it is a challenge. Cause there's a lot of things one doesn't want to look at or admit. To tell the truth, <laughs> uh, some some many things one likes to get rid of, and but other things there's all kinds of attachments, and conceit is one one of them. You know, for I think for many of us. Uh, uh, kind of conceit of, of not wanting to to uh, to have to admit or or look at some something that is very unpleasant in ourselves. But as we open to that and see that, recognize it, then we 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 strengthen. We find that stability. That unshakability of the heart that allows us to uh, understand and learn from life. So the the samana or the Buddhist monk or nun they is a is an, a living example of of that. A physio, you know, the, an obvious form: the shaven head, the saffron robe, the the the. The uh, Dhamma Vinaya, the four requisites. These are the. This is the form, the tradition that is now visible here and and working within the, this society. And so it offers that kind of reminder, like coming here today, all of you. You know, it's a, it's a joyful day because you come to 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 give uh, this katina. Offerings, the requisites to the sangha. It's a chance to to remind yourself of what you you really are, of, of the importance of of the Buddhist teaching, of the Buddhist path, to get some encouragement, some some, and to recognize that there are many people interested in this path. We live in a country that is non-Buddhist, so some of you can feel pretty isolated. When you go home, you live in places where nobody knows a thing about it or thinks that it's some kind of weird cult. In the Roger's Thesaurus of old, uh, I think they've changed it now, but it, but it used to be Buddhism was listed along with Satanism. <laughs> <Which> <laughs> I hope they've changed. This is how Europeans used to think, isn't it? That anything that wasn't Christian was satanic. So, so that but this but this uh, coming together and meeting each other from all different kind of cultural ethnic backgrounds, because our our bond that we share is is in the in the Dhamma, the teaching of the Buddha our respect, our love for that, and our th- recognizing the, the, the importance of that in our lives. So I offer this as a reflection for this afternoon and uh, express my appreciation for all the offerings made to the Sangha. And uh, I will be going uh, to Cambodia on the 18th. Flight to Thailand with uh, Ajahn Karuniko and uh, Venerable Appamado and uh, we will go to uh, Bangkok for three days and then on to Phnom Penh where we'll spend a month uh, in Cambodia and I haven't been to Cambodia since 1964 before Pol Pot I was a layman then. I saw Angkor Wat, pre Pol Pot Angkor Wat. Uh, I spent a week uh, there in Siem Reap, and uh, so this is a chance to go uh, to uh, Cambodia. And of course, we all have heard, you know, the the tragedy of that country and the the kind of uh, horrendous uh, things that have happened, uh, the traumas and the uh, brutality in a country that uh, used to be very peaceful, and a serene kind of land, and so within that uh, society, you know, something just the conditions, uh, horrendous conditions arose that that where the most horrible kind of slaughter and brutality could take place. And some people say, well, if Buddhism was really workable, why didn't it save Cambodia? And uh, they say, well, if, if, if the Cambodians had practiced Buddhism, that wouldn't have happened. <laughs> if Pol Pot had been a Buddhist monk <laughs> and practiced meditation and got enlightened, he would have been, been much better for everyone. <laughs> but because we do forget isn't it we do we do forget the these kind of you uh, know in, in a in a buddhist country also like in thailand or sri lanka a place like that it it is easy to just see buddhism as a kind of cultural thing and to to not value it not to appreciate it but just see it as a as part of our culture when it becomes it's easy to kind of dismiss or it may seem to a modern generation like something old fashioned something you know that your grandmother likes and then uh, you know the old people go to the temple but you're you're a modern young person with it <laughs> and uh, so you can could, you could see Buddhism as something you know that you might take up when you get around sixty, and but until then, you really want to investigate everything else. But the, but also uh, that's the danger of 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 a of an established religion, and when it becomes status quo and par- and integrated into the culture, then sometimes the profanity of it is almost smothered under all the etiquette and the. Things that grow up around it, and and one no longer uh, uses it as a teaching of awakening, but as a institution that one uh, pays allegiance to. Uh, so here in, in England, fortunately, it's it's not part of the establishment. It's, uh, it's the we're the oddballs of this society, we're the fringe, the Buddhist shaven-headed summoners, uh, and that's good. Because uh, it's uh, you know it, it's we can't take our existence for granted and and uh, also our intention mm-hmm. is is in the practice. This is what Lung Por Cha in Thailand was was always emphasizing in Thailand itself and trying to to awaken awaken the people there to the practice so that they they're actually putting it into practice rather than just going through the motions of some kind of Buddhist ceremony. Because like anything, if it's just a ceremony, it, it doesn't it may might make you temporarily feel good and that's about the best it can do. But meditation brings you right into the experience of living and 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 looking and awakening and understanding and investigating. And these these kind of words the Buddha used in the Pali Canon and you read the Suttas uh, uh, and the Vinaya the, and the Abhidhamma. it's all this this looking into, it's investigating it's examining, it's to in investigate, to look into you have to be awake and you have to put attention, you have to concentrate you have to be alert so this alertness this awakeness is, is what the Buddha actually means the awakened one, the one who, who knows, understands, who's not just a condition, uh, cultural uh, kind of guru, or, or just uh, a good person, uh, uh, but but has not looked deeply into life. And the Lord Buddha, the 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 the, the, uh, Gautama, the Buddha, the sage, the enlightened one. Uh, his whole life wasn't it was an investigation, examining, learning, watching, listening. When he established the Vinaya around the monastic order, it wasn't just a set of principles he figured out out of his brain, you know, the, uh, out of ideas. What well, it was based on experience and seeing how things operated, how things worked. Where the problems came from, who, and and where the misunderstandings took place, and the, and the ver- ver- uh, varying kind of weaknesses and, and difficulties that, that monks had living together, or Bikunis had, uh, order of women having the problems they had, and with the lay communities, so it was it was an investigation, learning from experience, not not an abstract principle or an ideal that the Buddha operated from. It's the suffering, its causes realizing the cessation and developing the way of non-suffering or the path. So I offer this as a reflection for you this afternoon and uh, may you have a safe journey back home and uh, I will be uh, back in England uh, at the end of January. I'll be in uh, Cambodia for a month and Thailand uh, until the end of uh, January. We have these uh, calendars also for 1998 if you want, I will pass them out if you come up afterwards.